You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it. God's word will always stand true. It's been tried in the fire, still good in this hour. A prayer to be a blessing. Hello, everyone. This is Donnie King, host of the Pod King Podcast Bible Study. And this is Don King, the co-host. Welcome, friends. Today, we will study the Bible according to how it's written in the original language and how it was translated into the King James Version. This is episode number 11. Last time, we studied Hebrews chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, and how God confirms His Word by signs, wonders, and gifts of the Holy Ghost. Then we also looked at the phrase, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Today, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and how God has put everything under the feet of Jesus, and how Jesus tasted death for every man to bring many sons unto glory. Okay, we'll now turn it over to the host of the Pod King podcast, Pastor Donnie King. Well, I've already introduced myself once. I'm going to introduce myself again to you. Good to be with you today. Certainly thankful for those tuning in. I'm glad that there is a way that we can study the Bible. And years ago, I always wanted to get into a Bible study and be able to be a part of a Bible study. But it it just seemed like that, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, they weren't as popular back then. I know some of the old timer preachers, they even preached against people getting together, having personal Bible studies. And I guess they were afraid that people would get together and it would turn into more of a game night or something like that. And the very reason they were gathering would be desecrated. But I'm thankful that we have this method today to be able to get together. Me and you may not ever be able to sit down at a table with a Bible together and look over the scriptures, but we can do it this way. And so I want to say thank you to everyone that's joining in and becoming a part of this study. We have been getting some good feedback, and we're certainly excited about what the Lord will do with this and who may be able to be helped through it. And that's the whole reason we're doing it anyway. Okay, now I want to get into the study today. And as was said by my co-host, we are looking into Hebrews chapter 2, and our main goal is to get to verses 9 and 10, but I want to back up just a little bit into verses 6, 7, and 8 one more time, go through them, cover a few little things where we're caught up to date to what we studied last time, and then maybe point out a couple of other things that I did not point out the last time, and then propel that into where we're going. And I think that we're going to have some interesting territory to travel and go through today. All right, Hebrews 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. 
that word that we were looking at the other day where it says little, we see uh, that man was made a little lower than the angels. That word I told you the other day was brachus in the Greek. That can refer to mankind. That can speak of life as being like a vapor that appears for a little while and then it's gone. But we also know that this applies to the Messiah as well. Now, every bit of this in verse 7 is described as divine action. Let me, let me point this out to you. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. That shows the work of God. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. That's the work of God. And did set him over the works of thy hands. Once again, all of those are the work, working power of God. So all of this happened in the past. All of it was completed by God. He made man a little lower than the angels. He crowned man with glory and honor. He set man over the works of his hands. Then it says he has put all things under his feet. Now, every bit of this could speak about Adam, who is the representative of all mankind. And we know that it, it, the analogy works. Adam was made lower than the angels, and he was given a form of glory and honor being created in the image of God. Adam was also set over the works of God's hands by being placed over the garden to tend it. And all things were put under his feet or dominion, according to Genesis 1 and 28. Now, I'll read you that. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God gave man that into his hand. So it could just mean Adam, right? It could mean Adam and the human race. That's definitely the way it's been translated most of the time throughout the years. But I want to point out that this also refers to the second Adam as well, Jesus Christ. Before anybody gets too excited about that phrase, being made, we got to look at the Greek again. And we've done covered this in earlier episodes. If you haven't heard them, I advise you go back, if you will, and listen to uh, the prior episodes, and it will get you caught up into this, because I may make allusions at times to things that we have studied that you may not have been a part of in the study. It's not a total loss if you haven't been on the previous ones and you don't want to go all the way back. Hang with me. I'll try my best to give a brief explanation. If it's not good enough for you, I do apologize. But the Greek word here for being made is the Greek word elato. Now, that means to decrease in rank or influence. And to think of it this way, I want you to just get a picture in your mind of a general in the army. Say the general was to relinquish his powers and say, I want to become a lieutenant. We would say they made him a lieutenant or he became a lieutenant. He existed as a general first. We know that the man was already there. He existed as a general. So we know his position was not created just to make something for him. But the word is speaking entirely of a lessening of rank or influence. He willingly chose to be made lesser than he was. This is exactly how we know the author of Hebrews is clearly speaking of Christ here, not Adam, not mankind. And it's very possible that he was pulling from Paul's writings in Philippians 2 and 1 through 7, where he spoke of Christ thinking nothing of himself, willing to make himself of no reputation. The Greek word elatu is conveying the idea of someone who had great power, who willingly relinquishes that power to become less than he has been. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. He became less than he always had been 
to make us greater than we ever could have been. The authors of the Bible definitely want us to understand that everything is under his feet and under his dominion. The writer of Hebrews says this in a couple of different places, but I want to go outside of the book of Hebrews. I will read you verse 8 again and of Hebrews 2 and 8, but then I want to go back and look at a couple of different places, maybe three. I'll, I'll go ahead and throw three in. We'll do Ephesians 1 and 22, Philippians 3 and 21, and Matthew 28 and 18. Hebrews 2 and 8 says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So going back to Ephesians 1 and 22, Paul said, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Philippians 3 and 21, Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Now this right here is speaking of him putting it under him. It's under him. So it's nothing that he has to worry about any longer. It's under him. It's beneath him. So we go to Matthew 28 and 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. It's under him. He has the power. He has the dominion. It's underneath him. David might not have known how prophetic his words were when he penned those words in the second psalm and in the eighth psalm, but I want to tell you something. He may not have known how prophetic they were, but when he penned them, the Holy Ghost that was moving upon him knew exactly what he was saying and knew exactly exactly why he was saying it. The author of Hebrews is establishing that this is not only a fact in speaking of Christ, it is the gospel truth. Where verse 8 says he left nothing that is not put under him, the word nothing has a very interesting meaning. Udis, udis is the Greek word here for nothing. It means not even one, not one man, not one woman, not one thing, none, nobody, nothing, none of these things, not any at all, not, okay? I mean, every form of the word no and uh-uh, I mean, it's there. I believe that pretty much concludes any argument of what nothing might mean here. It totally means nothing. There's nothing that is not under Christ. There's nothing that is independent of Christ. This means the world as we know it, life in itself, the universe, heaven, even hell is all dependent of Christ because nothing is independent without him. Without him was nothing made, but everything was made and it was made by him. Okay, so as we've been looking at Hebrews 2 and 6 through 8, I want to look at uh, Hebrews 2 and 9 through 10 in tandem. We looked at verses 6, 7, and 8 in tandem. We're going to look at 9 and 10. I'm going to read you 9 and 10, and then we're going to have to probably go back a little bit into the prior verses, 6, 7, and 8, and get our minds around why he's saying what he's saying in verses 9 and 10. Let me read you 9 and 10. I'll make a couple comments, and then we'll run back into all of those scriptures together. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, in case anyone has understood this author to mean that it was only Adam or humanity is being the fulfillment of Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2, we're thrust right into this verse with a definite focal point. We're pointed to Jesus again. So let's back up. 
Look at verses 6 through 10 and see if you don't see the whole thing taking shape on your own before I even expound upon it. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Keep in mind who is the man. What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, that phrase itself just speaks of Jesus in the New Testament, that thou visitest him. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bring in many sons unto glory that make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So now the definite focal point in verse 9 is, but we see Jesus. You might see Adam when you read Hebrews 2. You might see Adam when you read Psalms 8, but we see Jesus. You might see mankind in general, but we see Jesus. May I ask you, do you see Jesus here? Do you see Jesus here in the Hebrews? Do you see him in your life? Oh, that's a preaching point, and I need to skip on from that, but uh, it's definitely something that we need to consider when we read through this passage. Are you seeing Jesus when the writer's talking? But let's continue. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Once again, in this portion, we have the phrases, was made and a little which we've already defined in the previous studies that we have done. Both wordings are the exact same. Brachus is the little while short time. Remember, he was made a little lower for a little while. He was lower than the angels. Elatu, it still means to relinquish a higher rank and become a lesser rank or influence. So let me paraphrase this without trying to change the word of God in any, any form, but this is the main sense that the Greek is giving. But we behold Jesus, who assumed a lesser rank than the angels for a little while, being crowned with glory and honor. And then we could go on, but this is what we've got to to this point. The writer's object is to show that salvation is the original purpose of creation. Then he tells us dominion was given to man and not to the angels. In becoming a man, Christ became temporarily subject to the earthly dispensation of which angels were the administrators. Jesus came under the law of which the angels gave unto Moses. So Jesus came all the way down from heaven. Not only he didn't leave his deity behind, but he left his glory in the heavens and came to this earth. He assumed flesh like a man and came into this world under the angels. He acquired lordship as man, but now he is exalted above the angels. And doing so, he is doing away with this angelic administration. This also affects the world to come because now humanity will share with him in lordship. So we see a paradox that, that arises even all the way back from Psalms chapter eight, verses four through six. When David said what he did, I want you to think about this and think of it in terms of Jesus. David, of course, would not have been thinking of Jesus at this time. He was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, but he did not know Jesus at this time. 
Psalms 8 and 4, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, this is a paradox. How was man made lower than the angels, but yet all things are under his feet at the same time? That doesn't really make a lot of sense when you think of Adam, when you think of humanity, but when you're seeing Jesus, like Hebrews 2 and 9 says, we understand he became for a little while lower than the angels, and still yet, even when he was lower than the angels, everything else was still under his feet. That's why I know that this was only a temporary lowering of Christ below the angels. This was followed by his permanent exaltation over them forever. He is now and ever over them, always. He'll always be over us and the angels. Hopefully it doesn't bother anyone for me to insert the original and actual meanings of the words that we see here in the King James Version, along with a few of the meanings that we don't see coming from the Greek. Because if you want an exact reading of the Greek, you'd be amazed at how far from the original order that we see it in the English that it is. To transliterate Hebrews 2 and 9 straight from Greek into English, listen to how jumbled up this sounds to us in English. But who for a little, some than the angels, was made lower, we see Jesus. On account of the suffering of death with glory and honor crowned, so that by grace of God for everyone he might taste death. Do you see how hard a translator's job could be? So the next time you hear somebody grumbling about the way that somebody translated something, try to remind them, say, hey, do you realize how hard that would be to take all of those words and put them in the exact order you know that the writer was intending for them to be said in that way? I mean, you're actually making a pretty good assumption. If you're not led by the Holy Ghost in that, you're going to mess up. And so that's why we trust the translation process. These holy men of old were moved on as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. That's how they wrote. But the translators, some of them were not even Christians. And that's the thing that a lot of people, they try to sidestep. Oh, no, no, no. They were all great believers. Not, no, no, no. King James, when he got the translators together, King James was not even a Christian man. And so when he got his translators in there, they were not all Christian people full of the Holy Ghost and ready to write as the Spirit moved on them. They literally took what they saw and translated it to the best that they could according to their ability. Am I saying that to down the King James? Absolutely not. It's the Bible I read. It's the Bible I preach from. But when I go to teaching, I go back to the original language and I try my best to see what the original language says, because there are some things that cannot be conveyed from Greek into English very well or very easily when it comes to translation. So not only do the translators interpret the words, but they interpret the wordings, which means the exact placing of the word sequences. They must know the language very well. You can't just know a few Greek words and go in and do this. It matters which word is the nouns, which one's the verbs, which one's the direct objects, the adverbs, the adjectives, the subjects, the prepositions, and on and on. It matters what they are. The translators must then put the words in the best order possible in which they make the most sense, while also being very careful to keep the original intention of the author. That's not an easy job. Now, I want to examine a couple of word meanings here before we comment much upon this passage. The word grace we see is charis, charis. Now, that literally means divine influence upon the heart of man. 
Now that, my friend, will preach. That is a powerful statement that comes straight out of the scriptures because that's what the word means. When you're talking about the grace of God, you're talking about God's divine influence upon the heart of man. Now the word where it says to experience, and and I'm going from Hebrews 2 and 9. I should have made that more clear. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angel for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So that grace right there that every man has been able to have a taste of that's divine influence upon the heart of man so that he should taste death. That's guame. Guame in the Greek means to taste something. It means to experience it. It means to sample it or to eat it. To bring God's influence upon the heart of man, Jesus experienced death for everyone. Now, that sounds very similar to Philippians 2 and 7 through 9, and I will read it for you this time. I alluded to it earlier, but I want you to hear it yourself. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Okay, so what we're talking about here, he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. He tasted death for every man. He had to humble himself under death. He had to stoop to death in order to die. The English says Jesus died to taste death for every man. The Greek says it was for everyone. So neither neither of these contradict the other. Everyone means every person and every man. If you, you read it, according to today's woke society, every man, they literally think that means just every man. So women ain't included. No, this is for every human all mankind that Jesus did this for. Now, right here, I want to mention the ludicrous idea that the Calvinists teach called limited atonement. Of all their doctrines, this is the one I take issue with the most. How could anyone study the Bible? How could anyone know the will of God? How could anybody understand the sacrificial death of Jesus and come up with such an absurd theory? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. More than once, Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come unto me. All right, let me let me give you a few scriptures here because the reason I'm getting off on this tangent is the Bible said Jesus tasted death for every man, all mankind. Jesus didn't die for a limited few. I, there might be a limited few that's being saved, but he died for all. It's just that everyone is not receiving him. Let's go to John 12 and 32. Jesus said, and if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Not a few, not a couple, all. That's his purpose. He died that all men would come unto him. Romans 5 and 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all all men under justification of life. He died that all men might be justified. All men might be saved. Romans 8 and 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He died and delivered him up for us all. Not a couple of us, not a few of us, not all us redeemed, not all us elect. Second Corinthians 5 and 15. 
And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. He died for all. Second Corinthians tells us that in 5 and 15. First Timothy 2 and 6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. First John 2 and 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, not for the redeemed only, not for the elect only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He died for everyone. Now, I will concede to the point that I do believe that Jesus would have still come and did everything that he did if only one person were to have accepted him and be saved. But I also know, along with the writer of Hebrews, that he did all that he did to bring many sons unto glory, which is what verse 10 says in chapter 2. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Do you notice the difference between 9 and 10, he died and tasted death for every man, but he's bringing many sons into glory. So the Bible is already acknowledging. The writer of Hebrews is saying, I understand not everybody's going to receive him. Not everybody's going to be saved. So having come to this scripture, I want to begin parsing this portion for just a little bit, and uh, we'll close this lesson here in a few moments. It says, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. I want to make a few comments on what this writer has laid out here. Once again, the writer is speaking of Jesus without using his name here. But despite that, there's no less than three perfect allusions to Christ. For it became him who is him. We know the writer is continuing his previous thought. So he's speaking of none other than Jesus. For whom are all things? Well, we know that's Jesus also. And by whom are all things? we know is Jesus. So the word became in the Greek, it was fitting. It is behooved. It it means those same things. This certainly implies that Jesus was compelled to do what the writer elaborates so well on in the last half of this verse. The part that says, for whom are all things, describes that all things were created for Jesus. By whom are all things explains that the creation was accomplished for Jesus's own purpose, his own plan, and his own will. For further proof of that, let me read you a few verses, 1 Corinthians 8 and 6. But to us, there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Colossians 1 and 15 and 16. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, whether they be visible or invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And going back to one of the first verses we studied in this study, Hebrews 1, verse 2, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now, we understand here that it's by Jesus Christ that the worlds were made. He made them by his own glory, for his own glory. All right. Now, all of these things that we have studied today all tie together, and they all come together at the same point. They converge on the same things. 
this is the one that was made a little lower than the angels, Jesus. Jesus is the one that was crowned with glory and honor. Jesus was set over the works of God's hands. Jesus has had all things put under his feet in subjection. And then it goes on down and says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death. This is the only reason he came under the angels. He had to become flesh so he could die. He had to die so he could redeem lost humanity. Now, Jesus, even though he came under all of that, he's still crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Then the writer, to keep you from thinking less of Jesus, thinking, well, he came under the angels, he's less than the angels, says, it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. He's wanting you to know he created it all. The creator came under the angels, which are created beings. As a matter of fact, he became one of us, one of the lower created beings that were placed here on this earth And Jesus came to die, not to save the angels, but to save us, to become the captain of our salvation. And we'll find more about that in our next study. All right, Pastor, we do have a question in here for you today. Are you ready? I sure feel like I am. All right. Why does Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, say that God created the good and the evil? Wouldn't that make God evil if he created evil? Not necessarily, but I need to explain myself on why I say that, because just by the logical mind thinking of it, whoever would create evil must be evil. Whoever would create darkness must have darkness in them somewhere. And the Bible teaches us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But let's go to that scripture and let me read it to you and let you hear it for yourself. I'm going to read you the scripture before it and the scripture that was mentioned, Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west. Did you know the rising of the sun's in the east? I hope you learned that in school. The rising of the sun. He said, this is a poetic way of saying from the east and from the west, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. There you have God himself admitting that he did create darkness. You have God himself admitting he created evil. So is God wicked? Is God evil? Is God dark? Is there a dark side to God? Is God really not this great big good being in the heavens? Has he got some evil somewhere in him? Does this bother you to know that God did this? Obviously, the person who asked this question, it must have been bothering them. And the logical, rational mind would normally come to that conclusion. And I'm not making fun of the person that sent this in. Absolutely not. You're not thinking wrong. You're just not looking at the whole picture. Okay. Now, if you struggle with these concepts, you're going to have trouble seeing the complete authority that God possesses in all things. As I said the other day, I believe God is sovereign. I believe God is in control of everything. There's nothing that God is not in control over. That means whether it be light or it be dark, whether it be good or it be evil. Some people feel like this causes God to take on a sinister persona in their mind. They just begin to think of God in a different sense, and they begin to see him as as sadistic and being evil. No, 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 no. Let, let, let's back up. Let's use a little common logic, and let's use a little bit of the mind of Christ while we're at it. Common logic can explain this away easily. 
Before God created the light, what was there? What do you think there was? Darkness. It seems to me that the most logical answer would be if there was no light to start with, what would there be? Darkness. Darkness. So if you answer darkness, those of you out there listening, I must ask you then, who created that? God. What did we just read a few moments ago before we even get to this question? Now, uh, I did not even have this scripture set up in here because of this question that came in, but we just read that who created everything and without him was nothing made that was made. That was God. So we understand that he created everything. He made everything. And in making everything, he had to create the light, but that also means he created darkness because God created light with light comes the possibility of darkness. All right, so just by the fact that God created peace, that brings the possibility of war and evil into being also. How would you know what good is unless you had something that was bad to judge it by? If you were just looking at everything and there was no good and there was no bad, how would you know what was worse, cooking a meal and eating or murdering a child? How would you know that one of them was worse than the other? You've got to have a knowledge of what good is and what bad is. And so for you to be able to understand that God created the good, how can you appreciate that which is good unless there's something evil to judge it by? So by God creating light, there had to be darkness to judge it against. By God creating good, there had to be evil to judge it against. Otherwise, the mind of man, the heart of man could never discern what is right and what is wrong. So you had to have the opportunity to do good and to do evil, or else you would never know what you were doing. Friends, we'd like to take just a few minutes to thank you again for your questions and your comments that you're sending in. Keep the questions and comments coming. We enjoy and appreciate your participation. But remember, folks, if you have any Bible questions that you'd like answered, email us at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries, M-I-N-I-S-T-R-I-E-S, 1977 at yahoo.com. If you want to drop us a line just to tell us what you think about the podcast, feel free to do so at any time. We've enjoyed being with you today. Until next time, may God bless you all. Lord, I just want to do it right the first time There might not be another chance for me I want to lay down weights that beset me So I can keep my soul feeling free I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord For the gospel's sake Where I go, you've already been there But I'm walking in Jesus' name I'm walking in Jesus' name I'm going where he bids me go I'm dressing and talking like he wants me to He's the keeper of my soul I have learned to lean on Jesus And cast on him my ever concern I'm looking for a home in glory Where no sorrow will ever be